Mr. Berger, please refer to the bundle marked H1 before you. In this bundle, we will be dealing with the documents from page 166 to 170. Please turn to page 166. Is that your statement to the Commission? Uh, good, yes, that's my statement to the Commission. Please turn to page 170. Is that your signature appearing on that page? That is my signature. And do you confirm the correctness of the contents of the statement? I confirm the correctness of the statement. Thank you. Mr. Berger, at the time of deposing to this affidavit, what was your role at FNB? Um, at the time, um, I was the chief executive of First Rand Group, uh, of which FNB is a division of, um, as many of the other brands within the, in the broader group. And is this the current position you hold? Uh, I have recently stepped down as CEO of the group uh, at the end of August. And do you hold any current position I am, in First only Rand? I now hold a non-executive role in First Rand. Okay, and what is your experience in the banking sector? Uh, my experience started with uh, the First Rand Group, although it was a much smaller institution, 32 years ago in 1986 uh, in, the, in the finance division, the CFO of one of the larger divisions. Um, I progressed from being the CFO to running certain risk divisions within the group, progressed to running certain business units within the group, uh, ultimately becoming, becoming the, the, the financial director of the group, progressed to being the deputy chief executive, and in beginning of 2015, the chief executive of the group. And are you legally qualified? Uh, legally qualified? Or I ask you what my, my professional... Uh, what, are, what are your professional credentials? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a, a chartered, chartered accountant by, by profession. So the answers that you would be giving, would they be from a business operations point of view? Yeah, I think, uh, it, I think it's, it's very important that the, the answer to that is yes. As a chief executive, obviously we don't get involved in a lot of the detail. So a lot of my answers would be from a perspective of a CEO being responsible for the overall strategy and risk management of, of the group. Now, you spoke of risk management. Would this entail mitigation of risk? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in the testimony that was given by Standard Bank yesterday, the regulatory framework that was said to apply to Standard Bank was to mention a few, the Banks Act, PRECA, and FICA. Now, in addition to, if at all, what is the governing legislative framework within which F&B operates? I think it's obviously the, the, those three that you refer to being the Banks Act, the Financial Intelligence Center Act, and the pre prevention and combating of organized crime act are the main ones that we are responsible to, to, yes. to comply with. Obviously, what is also very important, uh, as a South African bank, we also operate in other jurisdictions, and we also have transactions uh, and, and, and interactions with, with financial institutions in other countries, which where we don't necessarily operate. So it's important that we also comply with the rules of those jurisdictions. Because we not comply, we expose ourselves to regulatory fines in those jurisdictions. But also, I think, also very critically important to the extent that if you deal with a, an institution in another country and they 
and they believe that we are not complying with the appropriate legislation in South Africa, we will cut ourselves off from the international financial markets. For an example, if we raise funding in the international markets, those funders would ask us the question, and we in fact have to certify that we comply with the legislation in terms of the Banks Act, the FICA Act, and the, and the Prevention of Organized Crime Act. Otherwise, they will not provide funding to the country. And I think also very importantly is, is that access to forex flows. South Africa, to the extent that we trade with other countries, we need to pay and receive in foreign currency. Now, if we don't comply with legislation in South Africa and in those countries, we will be cut off from our ability to trade in, in the international financial markets. Obviously, that would have dire strain, with the consequences for both us as an institution, our customers, and for South Africa. So complying with the legislation in SA, home, or in host countries is critically important in managing the business and the business risk of the institution. Okay, so if I understand you correctly then, the sanctions that the banks would face are also inclusive of prejudice, not only to the bank itself, but a greater effect would result on the South African economy. Absolutely. I think it's absolutely critically important that we comply with this legislation because we can, as a country, be cut off from the international markets, as I said, both from a funding perspective and from our ability to access forex markets for imports and exports. So absolutely critical that we comply. Thank you. Can I refer you to bundle H3? On page one of that bundle, there are several respondents that are cited there. Now, from this list of respondents, which accounts were closed by FNB? The Africa, they were, were all closed. If you go to page four, they were all closed other than certain mortgage accounts. Um, the reason for not closing mortgage accounts because those are long-term uh, 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 agreements and you, customers can't necessarily repay a mortgage loan. Now, a mortgage loan, in what the average person would understand, is if you finance against your house and there's a mortgage over that house. So those are long-term contracts, and to the extent that the customer sticks with those long-term arrangements, those long-term arrangements just run down. But we do not allow additional activity on those accounts, but the account is not closed because it's not practically possible and legally possible to, to, to close a bond because it's a long-term agreement. Now, in paragraph 10 on page 4, you refer to the 12th respondent whose account was not closed. The explanation that you've just given, would that be what a mortgage redemption account uh, abso is? Absolutely. It would be a loan secured by mortgage over a property. Now, on paragraph 9, there are five accounts which are listed there. Do you confirm that the evidence that you've just given insofar as the accounts that were closed relates to those entities? Yes, they were all closed. For the sake of the record? Um, Chair, I am on H3, page 4, paragraph 9. Thank you. Mr. Berger, of the accounts that were closed, do you confirm that the accounts listed in paragraph 9 are the accounts that were closed? Yes, they were closed. Could you please let's state the names of the accounts that were closed? In paragraph 9, we refer to Tegeta, TNA Media, 
uh, island site and Sahara computers. Thank you. Now, the account, the mortgage redemption. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, Jay. So, I was earlier on trying to see which paragraph 9 has got accounts. You okay. actually mean account holders. Account holders. Thank yes. you, Jay. Indeed. Mr. Berger, the 12th respondent is the respondent who holds a mortgage redemption account with FNB. Is this account still active with still, FNB? Still active. And is it for the reasons that you've cited? For the reasons I've cited. Those are long-term agreements. Now, insofar as the closure of the accounts, what process was followed by FNB prior to the closure of the accounts? I think it's, it's, I think it's very important that, that, that I spell out the process that leads up to the, the close of the accounts. In terms of the legislation under which a bank operates, we have an obligation, firstly, to um, do proper, as they refer to in the legislation, KYC, know your customer vetting. I, there is proper process, you have to go to allow a customer to become a, an, an, a client of the bank, and secondly, there are required processes to monitor customers on an ongoing basis to ensure that you're still comfortable in having that relationship with the customer. Now, those ongoing monitoring have two, two, two bases of doing. Firstly, there's external monitoring. External monitoring, for an example, means we look for adverse media coverage. Uh, internal monitoring would be we would look for activity on account that raises a level of, of suspicion. So those are the two processes we follow in identifying um, whether we want to exit a relationship with the customer. Those are the two, and, and those two processes are uh, prescribed also by the, the, the regulatory frameworks. Now, was there any written communication to the affected account holders whose accounts were closed by FNB? Uh, yes, we did. We gave them formal notice of our intention to close the relationship. Um, and we would have consulted with our legal team on whether we obviously have the right to and giving proper notice to close of the, of the accounts. Yes. If I can refer you to page 15. Page 15, Annex FNB1. Page 17, Annex FNB2. Page 19, Annex FNB3. and page 21, Annex FNB4. Were those the letters that were sent to the account holders whose accounts were closed? Uh, correct. Can I also refer you to page 35 of the bundle? Can you explain to the chair what that document is? Yeah, this is the, a, a document that are uh, specifically prepared for the purposes of this testimony and uh, to explain the, the process that we follow in deciding whether to exit a client or not exit a, a client from, from the institution. So you will see the, um, what the first column talks to origination. That refers to um, events external or internal that lead us to question whether we should deliberate 
whether the client relationship be been maintained or exited. So that first thing is there's a, a origination process, i.e., what are the type of things we look at to decide whether we want to deliberate the, 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 the continued relations with the client. So an example that we use there would be our client due diligence, which is required by regulation to do with an onboarding. Things like transactional monitoring, is there any activity on the account that, that leads us to uh, think that there are suspicious transactions on account? The other one is adverse media. So we will look at external media, whether there's adverse media on a specific client, etc., uh, etc. Et so we'll get, those would be trigger things that we look at to decide, let's deliberate a, that specific account, so which then goes from origination to deliberation. If it is escalated to, to deliberation, there's a specific, what we use internally, a POI forum. It's called the Person of Interest Forum, where these debates get held. Now this uh, Person of Interest Forum is an independent committee set up by the board to review specific clients, whether we want to continue or just monitor a relationship or exit the relationship. Me personally, I'm not even a member of the POI. We could specifically set up as an independent body that can apply their mind to that specific question. But do we monitor, or do we continue, or do we exit that relationship? You'll then see the remediation talks to what do we do? Do we just monitor that account, or do we, does the POI recommend that the bank exit that relationship? So that's the process we follow internally to come to a decision. There are trigger events, specific deliberations, and then a remediation action on that specific uh, customer. Yes, now this flow chart, does this chart reflect the process that was pursued in closing the accounts of the Gupta-related entities? Absolutely, that was the process. That's the process that gets followed in, with any customer. I'm going to refer you back to page 15. This is one of the letters that was sent to the account holders of FNB. Throughout all the letters that were sent to the affected account holders, on paragraph two of these letters is a standard line which FNB used through its legal representative. Can you please read that line for us? Uh, this is by, obviously written by the lawyers, referring to us as our client is entitled to terminate its relationship with you by giving you reasonable notice and our client hereby gives you such notice. Now, in consideration of this letter in its entirety and the specific paragraph, is there any way on these letters where the reasons for the termination of the accounts is set out? Uh, no, not specifically. So, did FNB have a legal basis for closing these accounts? Absolutely. We've uh, relied on the, 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 the Standard Bank case, which is, which is also referred to in my affidavit. Uh, and also, what's important, uh, that case was referred to the Constitutional Court, and that was confirmed to be the legal um, basis on which banks are allowed to exit their relationship with clients. Now, the reference to the case that you are making, is that what is entailed in paragraph 12 on page 5 of the bundle, H3? Uh, correct. It's the, the basis of uh, Kamp and others versus Standard Bank. Now, on page 23, still on H3, 
an extra F in B5. Do you know what that document is? Yeah, that's, the, that's the ruling from the Constitutional Court confirming, let me read rather the last sentence. The Constitutional Court has considered the application for leave to appeal and has concluded that the application should be dismissed with cost and it bears no prospect, as it bears no prospect of success. And this is a judgment by the Constitutional Court in respect of the application for appeal in Correct. the Bread and Cup case. Correct. And this, is this consistent with what you have set out in paragraph 12 on page 5 of your supporting affidavit? Correct. Now, again, going back to the letters, you can choose any one of the letters as I'm going to refer to a standard paragraph in the letter. Paragraph 6 of that letter speaks to communication with FNB in relation to either the closure of the accounts or any operational issue to the accounts, issue relating to the accounts rather, and that any such party must direct all such correspondence directly to the writer. Did FNB receive any written correspondence from any of the entities whose accounts were closed? Yes, we did. Um which is again, um, it's in, in the pact, it's on 25. Page 25. Where we did receive a letter from, from Nazim Owa, the CEO of Ogba Investments, asking for reasons of, for the termination of the accounts. Now on this letter, is there any contention in so far as the basis for closing the account? Not at all, they just asked for reasons. And did FNB provide these reasons? Uh, yes, we did. We responded. Um, and again, if you can guide me to the, to the page numbers. I have the following letter on page 26, 26 marked an extra FNB 7. Correct. And if you read uh, the paragraph, um, let me just find the right. Now, so if you look at, read paragraph 3, our client took a careful and considered decision to close the bank out on various entities due to associated reputational and business risks. Those were the reasons um, provided to, to the client. Did FNB receive any further response to this letter? We did not get any response to this, this specific letter. Was there any further correspondence of any kind from yeah. Mr. Howard? Yes, there was, which is, uh, if I'm correct, advocate on page 27. There was a, at the time of the Minister's of Finance application, there was an additional letter uh, which was directed um, by the, the lawyer of the client. But that was subsequent. It was not as part of our correspondence to him giving reasons for the close of the account. The, the Minister's application you're referring to, would that be the supporting affidavit you deposed to in support of the application. Correct. And did FNB respond to this letter on page 27? Yes, we did. And, and if I'm correct, on page 30, FNB 9. Where we indicated that we have provided reasons, which is again highlighted in paragraph 4, uh, Decision to close the bank accounts due to the associated reputational and business risk. And I think more specifically, I think important, the request that they made regarding uh, reporting of suspicious transactions to the FIC. We made it clear under paragraph 6 that that information we are not entitled to provide to any third party. We're only allowed 
to provide that to the FIC, not to any, any third party. When you say information related to suspicious transactions, C correct. could you elaborate for the chair on that? Was there certain information that was requested from FNB? No, banks have an obligation to report suspicious transactions to the FIC. Yes. Now, was this information requested from FNB? Um, the, in, this, in the letter previously, they asked, the client asked us to supply this information, which we responded by saying we are not legally entitled to provide him with the information that we've provided to the FIC. And this, this request was made on the letter on FNB 8, page 27. Uh, correct. correct. Now, there was repeated mention by FNB of reputational and business risk. Can I turn you to page 31, all the way to page 34? Firstly, can you explain what are those documents? These are documents that, that I prepared with, it, it, as part of my preparation for this, this testimony. Uh, the, um, just to give more clarity on these two specific topics. Which two specific topics? Of reputational and business risk. I think that specifically prepared those two uh, to give a bit more color and explanation as to what do we mean by reputational risk and, and business risk. Now, without reading word for word from these documents, can you please explain to the chair what FNB's understanding or stance is in so far as reputational and business risk? I think that the chair, I think one should put it into three buckets um, when we talk about reputational risk. If one does not comply with the regulatory framework of the country in which you operate, there will be reputational risk associated with non-compliance. There will also be reputational risk if a bank conducts in activities which are regarded by stakeholders as immoral, illegal, unethical. Or an institution will suffer reputational risk if its client base are involved in activities that introduce reputational risk onto the institution. Those, those are the three broad definitions. I think it's absolutely critical that the reputation and trust of a financial institution is sacrosanct. You mean a financial institution will not survive if its reputation and trust is not absolutely intact. That's why it's so critical that a bank, even the, the legislation prescribes banks to make sure that they manage reputational risk because the, the, the negative consequences of negative reputational risk on the institution has dire consequences on the business and the ability of the business to survive in the future. Now, remember, the moment you have an institution where there's never negative perceptions or negative reputational issues attached to that institution, many stakeholders no longer want to deal with that institution. I think we have many examples of what happened in this country about institutions that have negative reputations. Customers don't want to deal with it anymore. Funders don't want to provide funding to it. Regulators impose sanctions on it. Foreign, don't, foreign funders don't want to provide funding to the institution. There are many big negative business risk associated with negative reputational risk. So that's why, to us, we cannot afford as an institution to have negative reputational and the consequential business risk. We have to manage that. In the moment we believe that there's any activity, direct or indirect, that implicates or affects the, the, the reputation of the institution, we have to deal with that and make sure we manage that, that risk away. And that's why it was so critical in this example that the moment we 
the risk became too high of for, for, for First Rand or FNB to continue this relationship because it introduced negative reputational and negative consequential business risk on the institution. We thought it appropriate to act in the manner that we act and exit those relationships. So the activities which give rise to uh, a risk to reputational damage to a bank such as yours uh, would uh, not be limited to critical, I mean, criminal activities? Absolutely not. I think sometimes it's just perceived. Yes. It's a lot of times it's just perceived negative rather mm. than actual. But yes. In, in, in public opinion, it's more, most of the time it's perceived. And if you don't manage those perceived risks, you are going to suffer negative consequences in your business. So that's why it's absolutely sacrosanct for us as an institution that number one thing we manage is reputation and trust. Because without those two things, I think a financial institution finds it very difficult to do business. And because we are dealing with, with we have a fiduciary responsibility to depositors and we look after savers' money, trust is absolutely sacrosanct. And our reputation is absolutely sacrosanct. Because without those intact, it's very difficult to operate domestically and internationally. Thank you, Chair. Now, on page 31, the second bullet point, you state there that the reputational risk arises if people form a negative perception. Now, having heard what you've said, am I correct to say that the idea behind the negative perception would be in the ordinary meaning of something being perceived, whether it's actual or not? Absolutely. Sometimes the perceived risk or perceived negative reputation are sometimes more dangerous than the real ones because people make up their own, um, yes. they create their own view of the facts. Okay. Is reputational risk concerned only with illegal activities? Not, not. It can be. It can be sometimes perceived as being illegal, not actually legal. Because I think it's very important that sometimes the, the, the stakeholders that an institution like Fersion has to manage, the moment there's a perceived negative reputation, you cannot tolerate that, and it has to be dealt with. Can I ask this question, seeing that uh, the activities that uh, a bank would look, look at uh, include activities that are not necessarily uh, criminal. If, for example, there was, say, a political party or an association or organization that took a, a certain view on the politics in the country, and advocated for certain things, would that be a good enough reason for a bank if it thought that association with that political party could damage its risk? Would that be a good enough reason for it to close, to refuse to have to open any accounts for that uh, organization? Yeah, I think that uh, not, not per definition it's, it, it would be, but I think it would, any institution would take very due care before it takes such a decision whether it would bank or wouldn't bank it. But I mean, by the fact that you're a political party doesn't disqualify you immediately. But I think that there would be proper deliberation, as I described, 
in the institution and what is the policy when it comes to providing bank accounts or banking facilities to political parties. Those would be uh, form part of an internal de deliberation, but it can't merely disqualify you. Well, but as, in, uh, as, as a principle, would it be correct that what you have said means that there could be a political party or organization with whom a bank would refuse to have an association because of its views politically. Uh, I, if the bank thought that its views would cause reputational damage. If, if, we, believe, if we believe a an account could lead to reputational risk for the institution, we wouldn't open that relationship. If we believe that that could have negative reputational impact on the institution, we would not open that relationship. But I think it's just important, Chair, that it, uh, being a political party doesn't immediately disqualify you. No, no, no. Uh, obviously, I, I accept that because I'm sure the political parties that uh, operate in South Africa have got uh, uh, banking accounts with different banks in the country. But I'm, I'm emphasizing the views or objectives of a political party that from what you, you have said, it looks like one could find a situation where a bank says this political party or this organization stands for certain things with which we can't associate as a bank because it would, po it would pose a reputational risk to us. Therefore, we refuse to have any association with them. In principle, that is possible. Yeah, but uh, 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 we'll, have the, we'll have the debate internally of whether we believe there is such a risk. No, no I mean, if you believe, if you believe there is, mm. you would... Yeah. You that, would, would uh, that would apply to any account holder. Yeah. Any yeah. account holder, not yeah. specifically to a political party. Any account holder. Yeah. Because what I'm trying to establish is the principle you follow. Yeah. The, um, the principle of we cannot afford negative reputational risk on the institution. Mm. Uh, would you be able to say whether, for example, uh, individuals or organizations that might be perceived uh, to be racist would be would fall within the category of I, I think we, we chair would like to speculate on how we would deal with every type of account yes. I, I really wouldn't like to speculate on how we would deal with yes. specific accounts. but isn't racism one of those things that a bank such as your bank would not want to be associated with no, I agree and then i would i would have thought that internationally and nationally if you, as a bank, were seen to be associated with, say, a racist organization, that should pose reputational damage. And therefore, in terms of the principle that you have told us, the bank should be looking at, at uh, terminating any relationship with such people. Can I, can I, I think that's important. I think that can we stick to the principles rather than the specifics? I really don't want to delve into the specifics. <laughs> no, 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 Mr. Baker. No, 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 no. No, you can't get off the hook just like that. <laughs> the, the way to test 
the soundness or validity of principles is precisely to put up facts uh, to see how they are applied. Yeah. Are they applied consistently or not? Uh, Chair, and let me respond that way. We will always apply the princes, the, these principles consistently in whichever situation we get faced with. We'll apply the same principles to every new account or an existing account that we need to monitor. We'll apply our principles consistently. But I would have thought that it must be the uh, and very easy uh, answer to give to say any organization or individual that exposes racism, a bank would not want to have any association with that person because uh, a lot of people would not want to interact or associate with us if uh, we are seen to be associating with racists and so on. I agree. Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Mr. Berger, staying on page 31, on the fourth bullet point on page 31 of your document, there are three entities that are listed there, and following that and before that are two bullet points. Can you please explain what the relevance of this information is? Um, Chair, what we were trying to it is, again, I prepared this for my own purposes. What we, we showed examples of what can happen to businesses that have a negative reputational risk associated with them and in dealing with specific clients. Now, it, the KPMG, Bank of Road and McKinsey are examples of what happened, negative reputational risk associated with that entity and what comp negative business, co business consequences followed that uh, that, that reputational risk. A lot of clients no longer did business with these entities. So those were examples that you were providing? Yeah, those are just examples. Thank you. We now move on to an invitation that FNB received. Can you turn with me to page 169 to 170 of bundle H1? I know you, you prefer to call them bundles, and many of us do, but if we want to be consistent and not confuse anybody who might read the transcripts later, maybe we should just say exhibit H1, exhibit H3, so it's consistent that we are talking about the same thing. Indeed, Chair. Thank you very much. Exhibit H1, Mr. Berger, from pages 169 to 170. On paragraph 14 to 19 of your statement, you narrate events relative to an invitation to a meeting by members of a political party. Is that correct? Correct. Who invited you to this meeting? I received a phone call from Mr. Inokonungwane, the head of the then. Uh, economic cluster of the ANC to attend a meeting with the Secretary General of the ANC in the Tule House. It, um, when I received, I was, I must say, an unexpected call. Uh, when I received the call from him, I indicated to him that I was out of town and would only be available for such meeting later that week and he should 
make contact with me rather, because I think that was the Monday, Tuesday, you should rather make contact with, again with me uh, by the Wednesday to, to discuss the, the, the meeting. And uh, when, he, uh, when I made contact with him again on, on the Wednesday, I asked him, please can he just give me information on who would be attending the meeting, the purpose for the meeting, in, 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 in a request to properly prepare myself for the discussion. I think it's in nobody, well, I don't go to any meeting and I list, unless I understand who's attending, what is the agenda, and what is the purpose of the meeting. So I asked him to just, please can he supply that information uh, to me. Um, I asked him again uh, through, in fact, I supplied a, a series of SMSs between myself and, and Mr. Ino Konungwane on, on that. I supplied him, uh, um, I SMSed him, requesting me to, him to confirm to me whether the meeting was still going ahead on the, on the Thursday morning, if I'm correct. Uh, I asked him again. He later that evening confirmed to me that there was no longer a requirement for me to meet the Secretary General of the ANC in, in the Thule House. So, um, so got the request for the, for the discussion, as I said, unexpectedly. I <laughs> didn't quite understand why I got the invitation. Asked for, uh, but I couldn't immediately make myself available. I was only available from the, from the Thursday. I asked for him, please, to, to provide me with the, the, the attendees, the, the agenda, so that I can properly prepare myself. I asked for confirmation whether I was still required to meet the SD the next morning on the Thursday morning. He confirmed back to me that the, the, the meeting was off. I SMSed him back to say that I hereby confirm that the meeting is off and I'm no longer required to appear at, the, at a meeting with the SG in the Thule House. And that was the extent of my interaction with uh, the a political party that through the SG of the ANC in the Thule House. Okay, Mr. Berger, I'm going to take you back a bit. On your initial contact, what was the communica communicated purpose of the meeting? Uh, it was about the closure of accounts. And this would be what is reflected on paragraph 14 on page 169 of your statement? Correct. He was, he was, in, he was informed that he was setting up meetings with the CEOs of the banks to discuss the closure of the, of the accounts. Was it specified which accounts? Well, it, it was the Gupta accounts. It was referred to as the Gupta accounts. In your communication? In, in my telephone communication, you would not on the SMS, when I spoke to him the first time, because the SMSs only start subsequent to my telephone discussion on the 18th or the 19th. Now, did you know who would be in attendance at the no, meeting? Not at all. Hence, my, me asking him, please, can you provide information as to who would be in the meeting? And what was the purpose of you seeking to know who would be in the meeting? As I said earlier, I think that I don't attend any meetings if I don't know who the attendees are and what the agenda and purpose of the meeting is. Because I need to prepare myself, otherwise I come to a meeting uh, unprepared. Uh, now, Mr. Berger, there is screenshots of SMSs between yourself and Mr. Godongwana. Chair, I would beg leave to hand up these screenshots as H1A. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, 
Did you say you are asking that the document containing the SMSs be marked H1A? Yes, Chair. Okay, this document will be marked as Exhibit H1A. Thank you, Chair. Mr. Berger, from your statement on paragraph 20, on paragraph 18, rather, pardon me, you indicated there that the meeting did not take place. Correct. What was the reason for this meeting not taking place? I have no idea. I requested that Mr. Gorongwani confirm that the meeting was still on. He came back to me and said the meeting was off. And this was following your inquiry into who would be attending the meeting as well as the agenda of the meeting. Uh, correct. And this is what is reflected on paragraph 17 on page 4 of your, of your statement. Correct. They say attending the meeting, the agenda, and able to, so that I could prepare myself for the meeting. Having received communication that the meeting was off, did you communicate any further with Mr. Godongwan? Not at all. I just, as I said, I confirmed back to him saying that I confirmed that I received your message that the meeting is off. And this would be the last message on the screenshot? That's the last message on the screenshot. The, the message from me back to, to him. Thank you very much. Now, is it normal for a bank to receive such an invite from a political party? Yeah, as I said earlier, unexpected. So I wouldn't expect to get a call from a political party to to ask questions about a banker-client relationship. So yes, it, would, it was unexpected. And in my 32 years as a banker, first call I ever got on, from any political party on asking questions about a banker-client relationship. Thank you. Now, moving on to the next meeting invite, can we turn to page 167 to 169, still on exhibit H1? Again there, you set out events relative to an invitation for a meeting by the IMC, pardon me, is this correct? IMC, yeah. Now, who did you receive this meeting invite from? Uh, from the acting secretary of the IMC, uh, Ms. Kellerman, sent me the, 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 the invite to attend a meeting. I got the, the request on the 22nd of April, um, for a meeting to be held uh, on the 25th of, of April. Now, can I turn, can you turn with me to page 171? An extra F and B1. Yep. Would that be the meeting invite you received? That was the first invite you received. You can see it's also directed at, at F and B, who had this, the, the relationship with the client. But because these matters are dealt with at an institutional level, it, I redirected to them that I would be the, the responsible person to deal with the, 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 the matter. Now, what was the communicated purpose of this meeting? Again, uh, the, the meeting, the request was referring to certain media allegations that... Um, um, 
against FNB on, uh, on client closures. Uh, that was the, the, the request for, for the meeting. It, uh, the, it, I did respond back in asking, well, first of all, um, similar to what I've, would have, I've, I've done with the previous request from, from, um, from, the, from the ANC, is please can I understand um, the, who would be attending the meeting, what allegations are you referring to? Are there specific allegations against FNB? And what is this, the scope and purpose of the meeting? Again, without that information, it's very difficult to prepare for any interaction with anybody. Okay, we, we will deal with your response shortly. I still want to deal with the invitation itself. On the second paragraph, the email is not numbered in paragraphs. But on the second paragraph, starting with, as explained, can you please read that entire paragraph? As explained, as the acting secretary of the interministerial committee set up by cabinet to look into, the, into certain allegations made against certain financial institutions, um, I've been requested to make contact with yourself, alternatively a suitable alternative with requisite authority and request that you please make yourself available for a discussion with the IMC on Monday, 25th of April, 20, 2016, between 10.30 and 11. There is no set agenda for the discussion, but I am advised is anticipated to be a discussion to gain clarity on the current media reports. Should you be unable to attend in person, a telephone a teleconference could be arranged. Thank you. Now, as the email invite indicates that there was no set agenda, I would assume that you did, you did not receive any agenda, as this was specifically said. I did not receive any agenda. Thank you. What was FNB's response to this letter? You've briefly set out the information that was sought by FNB from Advocate Kellerman. Yeah, so um, our response is set out in, on page 173, FNB 2.2. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, before you go to that to your response, <clears throat> I see that in the paragraph that uh, you have read in the letter at page 171 of Exhibit H1, it is said that the interministerial committee had been set up by the cabinet. And I see that the author of that email indicates that she is advisor to the Minister of Mineral Resources. Um, am I correct that you, you would have understood that the interministerial committee that sought to meet with you was a creation of the cabinet? In, in fact, correct, Chair, in, that in fact, when in my, in my response I referred to, we have noted the interministerial committee which has been set up by Cabinet. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Now, briefly, in your response to this request, as appears on page 173, and extra FNB 2.2, there's certain information that you sought from Advocate Kellerman in respect of the meeting invite. Now, you have just set out that you sought information on who would be attending the allegations um, that the IMC is looking into, the specific allegations against FNB, and you further mentioned of the nature and scope of the process. 
Now, for what purpose did you seek this information or found it necessary? Uh, again, uh, Chair, it was important for me to, it, with, as I explained in, in, in previously, when you attend meetings, it's always important to understand who would be, be attending, what is the purpose for the meeting, what is the agenda for the meeting, so that you can properly prepare yourself, and then, otherwise you don't have a productive discussion. That was the critical thing for me to make sure that I go into a discussion properly prepared um, to, to make it a productive discussion, so that both parties can both parties can benefit from the interaction rather than going into discussion unprepared without understanding the, 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 the purpose. I, I guess also it's important so that uh, if uh, some of the people who will attend are people that you really don't want to meet with, you can make up your mind whether you are going there or not. Absolutely. I think if they were, and again, uh, if for an example, if, if, they, if I got a list and there were people on there that were not part of the IMC, or people that should be part of the IMC and, and, and weren't there, that I can make up my mind whether I'm going to attend or not attend. Thank you, Chair. Now, did FNB receive a response to this letter? Uh, the only response we got was from the acting secretary again saying she has no mandate to respond to my request, which yes. I again found very strange. Is this response what appears on page 174 as annexed to FNB 3? Uh, correct. Uh, it clearly says, as the acting secretary of the committee, I'm not mandated to respond to the questions raised in your email and the reply uh, suffice to note the following, uh, which is a repeat of, of things he's previously said. It's an uh, IMC set up by, by Cabinet, and it's looking at allegations of, of, of client closures. Nothing new. Now, under paragraph B on page 174, there is reference to information that would be shared to the, during the session, rather, um, and that same will stem from media reports only and must and must, of course, be related to Cabinet for it to be properly considered. Now, were you aware what media reports were being referred to? Not at all. In fact, in my first response, I asked them which allegations are they referring to and, and are there any specific allegations leveled at F&B that we asked for that clarity and that wasn't provided. And you responded to this letter. Is that the response you're referring to? Uh, yeah, I responded. Uh, my response again is uh, attached in uh, in 176. An extra FNB 4.2. Yeah. Yes, and in that letter, what are you seeking? Again, I'm saying thanks for her email. We had anticipated that we would be given the requested information in order to allow us to meaningfully prepare for the meeting with the IMC. In light of the fact that we do not have the clarity and given current unavailability, we respectfully at this time decline the invitation for the meeting on the 25th of April 2016. And this information is the information that you set out in your letter on page 173. Correct. Where you seek information as to who would attend, allegations. allegations, agenda, etc. Did you receive any response to this letter? No, I received no res response, other than the, uh, 
a, a fur further request later on for, for a meeting. And what was different from in the further request from the first request? Uh, that's on page 177, FNB 5, where an invitation is extended. It's holding further sessions, and I've been mandated to extend a further invitation to FNB to meet the IMC on Thursday, the 5th of May at 12.30. I am now mandated to further advise as follows. The IMC consists of the Minister of Labour, Communications, Mineral Resources and Finance. Uh, the engagement will take the form of a discussion with the bank representatives. The scope of the discussion will center around public comments made by FNB. We did not make any public comments. Just make, let me make that point very clear. Around the discussions taken by the institution to close bank accounts of certain of its clients. Whilst Cabinet appreciate the terms and conditions of the banks, the Act may deter potential uh, investors who want to do business in South Africa, in fact the contrary, to the extent that we not comply with international and local laws, you will scare away foreign investors. Cabinet has endorsed the Minister open a constructive engagement with the banks to find lasting solution to, to the matter. I don't know what solution they were referring to because I didn't know what problem they were trying to deal with. Yes. Now, still on paragraph B, did you have an understanding or an appreciation of the terms and conditions of the banks that were referred to in the IMC's letter? No, not at all. And did you have in a, an understanding of the acts that were referred to that may defer potential investors? No, not at all. And you've just stated that this lasting solution that was to be adopted, that it flowed from a problem you did not know exist or you were not familiar with or aware of? I, I was not aware of the problem that they were trying to solve, so I didn't know what the solution was that they were trying to find for the problem. Thank you. And did you respond to this letter? Uh, yes, I, I did. I think which is the FNB 6, uh, page 178, Advocate. Uh, Chair, you'll see that. Um, I, should I read from that my response? You can paraphrase it. Um, I, what we then, I responded back by saying, whilst we are prepared to engage with the IMC, we can only do so on the following basis. Firstly, um, whilst we can discuss the regulatory framework under which banks operate, we will not debate any client-specific matter with the IMC because we would, that would actually be illegal. We can't discuss client-bank relationships with any third party. And the second thing we, we uh, then added Secondly, we will only meet with the IMC if all the IMC members are present, in particular the Minister of Finance. Remember, they confirmed that the Minister of Finance was part of the IMC, as he is the responsible minister for, for the legislative framework under which banks operate. We'd like written confirmation of the Minister of Finance's attendance ahead of the meeting. We look forward to your response. Now, on your request of confirmation of the Minister of Finance's attendance, did you receive this confirmation? I received no response to my request. No response to this letter? Other than the same, I'm not have any, I do not have any authority or mandate to, to answer any of your requests. Now, can you just explain why it was important to you that the Minister of Finance be in attendance at this meeting? I, I think, Chair, the Minister of Finance firstly was part of the IMC. I think. And secondly, 
the, the Minister of Finance is the ultimate custodian of the, the legislative framework under which financial institutions operate. So th that's why we believe that it was appropriate to, for him to be part of that discussion, because he would have an appreciation for the, the regulatory framework and that we can, under which we operate, and we cannot, we can talk about the regulatory framework, but we cannot talk about client-specific issues in, in, that, that, in that meeting. Now, having to post to the supporting affidavit in the minister's application, which is Exhibit H3, you are obviously well acquainted of the bases upon which the application was made. Yes. And now, in light of this, and in hindsight, do you think that you would have received such a confirmation of the Minister of Finance's attendance at the meeting? Uh, so the, the question is, did the Minister question his authority to be at the meeting? But I, I, but I don't know. But I, I, from our perspective, it was just, for us it was very important that because he was part of the IMC, that when we meet with the IMC that he is present. Thank you. Now, on page F, on page 179, pardon me, an extra FNB7, was that the response you earlier referred to? Yes, uh, which is a similar response to all my previous requests for, for, um, for further information, i.e. agendas, who would be attending, etc., etc. Now, briefly, what was this response you received? The content of the response. Uh, again, it says, thank you for your mail. As you know, I'm not mandated to respond to your queries. They will be brought to the attention of the committee tomorrow. Now, this correspondence or response from Advocate Kellerman was the third round of correspondence that FNB had with the IMC. And having set out more than once information relating to the meeting and the bases upon which FNB would attend, what was your impression of her response, of her not being mandated to respond to your queries? Very unprofessional and couldn't understand why that was the only response I would get for what we regarded as reasonable requests. Thank you. Now, after the correspondence on page 179, what transpired? Was there any further correspondence from the IMC? No further correspondence. Uh, we just uh, responded and said that because we haven't received the information we've requested, we will de again decline the meeting to attend. This response that you're referring to, is that what appears on page 185 as an FNB9? Correct. Thank you. Now, in conclusion, and what impression were you left with after receiving invites of meetings from both the ANC as well as the IMC? Now, I think that, as I said earlier, with the, the, uh, in my 32 years of, in banking, this is the first time ever I've received requests uh, from a political party or an interministerial committee to, uh, to want to discuss banker-client relationships. So I think that that to me was the unexpected. I really didn't expect to be to, to, for any third party to want to question that relationship between bank and client. Now, in your supporting affidavit, which is Exhibit H3, on page 13, 
paragraph 32.2.7, you expressed a view, or rather made submissions to the court, on the uncertainty regarding the powers of the IMC. Could you please read into the record that entire paragraph? There was at the time uncertainty regarding the powers of the IMC and I believe that the declarative order will avoid such situation in future and will encourage public officials to act in accordance with the constitution and national legislation, uh, particularly if one has regard to the fact that the acting secretary of the IMC extended a further invitation on 4th of May 2016 to, the, to an IMC meeting, which was after senior and junior counsel already on the 25th of April 2016 provided an opinion that the IMC meeting was not authorized by legislation and would be unlawful. So on that paragraph, what was the basis of the uncertainty regarding the powers of the IMC? Um, we obviously would have seeked legal, our own legal counsel on whether um, the IMC had a legal standing. Okay, in Standard Bank's testimony yesterday, Standard Bank gave evidence that the ANC requested it to respond to an allegation that there was collusion of white monopoly capital. And to remind the chair, this appears on page 106 at paragraph 19. Did F&B collude with any banks or have any discussion with any banks in relation to the closure of the Gupta-related accounts? I categorically deny any collision or interaction with any bank regarding our decision to close uh, accounts of the Guptas. Thank you. Also in Standard Bank's statement on page 111212, of Exhibit H, H1. At paragraph 31, there is reference made to certain recommendations which had been announced by Minister Zwane, then Minister Zwane. Do you accept that these recommendations could have affected FNB? And do you have any, any comment on the nature of these recommendations? I, I think the mere fact that recommendations by the Minister of Mineral Resources into the um, financial, the operating of financial institutions uh, is a worrying statement to be made by, by, by Minister Zwani. I think it's worrying that that, that that statement could be made. And why is it worrying? I think that because that ultimately the Minister of Finance and other regulatory bodies are the appropriate um, regulatory oversight institutions to deal with those matters. Thank you. Chair, unless there are any other further questions, this will come I, I may have missed it, but I don't seem to remember that you asked him the you asked him to confirm his affidavit to which you referred a few minutes ago. I know you asked him about a particular paragraph. I don't know if you asked him to confirm that that's his affidavit filed in whatever matter. I believe I did, but for the sake of certainty, I can certainly request him. Um, Mr. Berger, can you refer to page one of Exhibit H3? H3 is the smaller one. That would be your supporting that, that, affidavit. Correct. Do you confirm that this is your affidavit? I confirm that that, that is my affidavit. Can you refer to page 14 of that affidavit? I can confirm that that is my signature. Can you, you confirm that that is your signature and you confirm the correctness of the contents of this affidavit? I confirm the correctness of the affidavit. 
Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Uh, you were given, I assume, Exhibit H1A. That is the exhibit that uh, appear, appears to have SMSs between yourself, I think, with Mr. Kotungwana. Um, that Exhibit 1A has got four pages. Um, Should only have to, only be two pages, Chair. Oh, I have got four pages. Was I given two extra pages? Well, the two extra pages don't seem to have SMSs, yeah, but... The, 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 Chair, only the first two pages has the SMSs. Yeah. Might I, might I provide clarity on that? The, the, the SMS screenshots appear on page one to two, as correctly yes. put by the chair. On page three to four yeah. of that um, bundle would be, of that exhibit, pardon me, would be the account holders um, whose information was confirmed by Mr. Berger. So the accounts that were closed were listed by Mr. Berger in line with paragraph nine of page four of exhibit H3. Well, you, you might wish to just get him to confirm the SMSs and to confirm what pages three and four are about, because I don't remember that you dealt with that. Certainly, Chair. I did deal with the SMSs, Chair, but for the sake of certainty, I will deal with them again. Mr. Berger? The first two I'm, pages... I'm sorry. If I recall correctly, you may have uh, dealt with them in terms of him simply telling us, without reference to this document, what SMSs he, re he received. I think you need to direct him to each one and he will confirm who it came from or who it went to, who sent it. Maybe it will then be convenient for him to just read them into the record. Certainly, Chair. Yeah. So, Mr. Berger, can you confirm, can you identify the documents that are in front of you that um, start on page one until page four? Uh, yes, sir. the Chair, the page one and two is screenshots of an uh, SMS uh, conversation between myself and uh, Mr. Inokonungwane. Pages three and four are the list of the accounts we have closed and also some of the accounts that are still open, which we spoke about. Would the chair require that they be read into the record? Yes. Uh, the first one, Mr. Uh, Mr. Berger, uh, it, seems, it says, please call Enoch Kotungwane from the ANC. Is that correct? Is that the first one that you received from him? The first SMS you received from that him. correct, Chair. That's the first SMS I received from him. Yes, and then the next one, do you want to read that into the record and confirm that it was from you and the, the, whether, to the, him? The next SMS says, Dear Enoch, I'm about to board a, a flight from Cape Town, Johannesburg, and I phoned you early afternoon. Regards, Johan Berger. Do you want me to read that? Yes, just continue. Yeah. So the, he responded by saying, Yes. Um, I then SMSed him again the, the next morning, the 21st of April. Uh, morning, Enoch. With reference to our telephone call of yesterday, please, come, can, please can you confirm agenda for me to <laughs> attend this? Just want to make sure that I'm properly prepared for the meeting. 
Um, then I did not get a response from him. I then SMSed him again later that early, later afternoon, early evening at half past six. Evening, Enoch, is meeting still on as planned, Johan? He then responded back to me, meeting off. I then responded to him just to make sure that there's no misunderstanding. Thanks for coming back to me and I confirm that there is no meeting with the SG tomorrow regards you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you, Chair. So, you are done. Yes, unless there are any further questions from okay, the Okay, no, that's fine. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Becker, for your evidence. Uh, we'll excuse you now. But should there be a need for you to return, the Commission's legal team will be in touch with you and request you to return. Thank you, Chair, and thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much. You are excused. Mr. Pretorius. Chair, maybe convenient to take the long adjournment now and return yes. at quarter to two, yes. but if you want to start with the next witness, we can now. Uh, uh, how long do you think, do you have an idea how long the witness might be? Um, about an hour, I'm told. About an hour. Well, uh, maybe let's start with the witness and use this 10, 15 minutes or so, and then continue later on. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, the next witness will be Ms. Yasmin Masitela, who is the representative of APSA Bank. Thank you. Oops. I still need to master the microphone. Yes. So we are, uh, Chairperson, we're still continuing with term of reference 1.7? Yeah. Um, May I ask that the witness be uh, sorry? Registrar, please uh, swear the witness in. Please state your full names for the record. Yasmin Mazitella. Do you have any objection with taking the prescribed oath? No, I don't. Do you consider the oath to be binding on your conscience? I do. Do you swear that the evidence you will give today shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? If so, please raise your right hand and say, so help me God. So help me God. Thank you. 
Chaperson, uh, as the matters of housekeeping, I would like to hand to hand up a further bundle, which I would ask that it be marked H four, H H five. This is already an H four. Exhibit H four, H five. Can I beg you that it be handed to the witness as well? I've been corrected that it should be H4. There is, there is no H4. The uh, last one was H3. Uh, this uh, document will be marked Exhibit H4. Another document that I would also would like to hand up to a person and make it exhibit H5. It's a one page. Exhibit H5. Thank you, Chair. Miss, Miss Masitela, I would like to refer you to Exhibit H1, which is in front of you, page 186. There is an affidavit. That goes from page one, page 186, um, up to page 190. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Miss Masitela, do you see Exhibit H1 in front of you? I do, Chairperson. Okay, all right. Thank you. Thank you. There is a statement that is appearing on page 186 of that exhibit, up to page 193. Do you confirm that this is the statement that you made for the, to, for the commission? I confirm that. Do you confirm that the signature that appears on page 193 of this document is your signature? I confirm that it's my signature. Uh, Ms. Masitela, would you please... For the purposes of the record, Tell us what is the, current, the position that you're currently holding at Absa Bank. I'm currently the Chief Executive of Strategic Services at Absa Bank, responsible for strategy, people, separation, and digital. Prior to that, I was the Chief Compliance Officer of Absa Bank, and at the time that I deposed to the affidavit in the High Court matter, pertaining to the Minister of Finance, I was the Chief Compliance Officer of the bank. And how long have you been with APSA Bank? I've been with APSA Bank since 2011. And what are your academic qualifications? 
I'm a lawyer by training. And for how long have you been in the banking industry? Since 2011. Prior to that, I was in private practice. Thank you. Um, Ms. Masitela, you, you gave us a statement in which you dealt with the issues, the issues that arose. We dealt with uh, term of reference 1.7 of our terms of reference, in which you dealt with the um, interference or the alleged interference by that might have happened by any member of national executive, executive including the, de the deputy minister, who may have corruptly or improperly intervened in the matter of closing of the uh, Gupta-related bank account. Um, if I look at the time, timeline, your bank was the first bank to close the Gupta, relate, the Gupta company-related account. Would you, for the purpose of the record, tell us when were the Gupta-related accounts that Absa Bank held were closed? Chair, if you may indulge me, <clears throat> I think um, as a backdrop, it might be prudent to set a backdrop of the legislation that pertains yes. to financial yes. crime. Yes. Banks in South Africa are very highly regulated and are supervised by the South African Reserve Bank. In addition to that, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, as well as the Financial Intelligence Center, monitor and regulate banks. The main pieces of legislation pertaining to customer onboarding and transactional activity that the banks have an obligation to ensure are done properly are the Banks Act, the Prevention of Organized Crime uh, Act, the Financial Intelligence Center Act, the Protection of Constitutional Democracy Against Terrorist and Related Activities Act, which both create money laundering and compliance obligations for financial institutions. We also have exchange control regulations, which form a basis of our ability to transfer foreign currency in and out of South Africa. We are also bound by international legislation. In terms of international le legislation, the Basel III regulations apply to banks. The Basel Committee of Banking Supervision Guidelines on sound management of risk relating to money laundering and financing of, of, of terrorism apply to banks. At the time that these events took place, we were a subsidiary of Barclays PLC, Barclays Africa Group Limited, who is the parent company of APSA Bank, was a subsidiary of Barclays PLC. As a result of that, we were also obliged, I'm sorry, Chair. We were also obliged to follow international uh, laws pertaining to um, money laundering and terrorist financing. In that regard, Chair, we, were, we fell squarely within the regulatory ambit of the Financial Conduct Authority in the United Kingdom, the Prudential Regulatory Authority in the United Kingdom, as well as the Department of Justice in the United States of America, and the Federal Reserve, amongst others. We also have internal policies that guide us on how we implement risk management practices to allow us to ensure that the bank is 
not used for any unlawful activity or does not facilitate any unlawful activity. South Africa is a member of the Financial Action Task Force, commonly known as FATF, which is an intergovernmental body established by the G20 and is responsible for the development and promotion of international policy and standards to combat money laundering. And I think it's an important context to bear in mind that as a subsidiary of an international bank, the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, also was a piece of legislation that APSA had to implement internally and create policies that would allow us to ensure that we do not fall foul of those pieces of legislation. Chair, I'd like to refer you to Regulation 36 under Section 90 of the Banks Act. And in that regard, can I ask the Chairman to go to Exhibit, I'm sorry, I, H4? H4? Before uh, witness go to H4, can we please identify this document that is Exhibit H4? Exhibit H4, Chair, is my affidavit on behalf of APSA Bank mm -hmm. in the High Court matter pertaining to the Minister of Finance. And do you confirm the signature that appears at the last page of that document, which is page 13. Sorry, it's, it's the second last page, page, page 12, 12, is your signature. I confirm that it's my signature. Thank you. Then wait. Chair, I refer you to Regulation 36 under Section 90 of the Banks Act. Re regula Regulation 36 provides that every bank shall have in place comprehensive risk management processes and procedures to prevent the bank from being used for money laundering or other unlawful activity. The South African Reserve Bank, our banking regulator, is empowered to revoke the bank's license for failure to comply with Regulation 36. It's an important context because, amongst others, the Banks Act and various pieces of legislation require us or provide this, the financial services structure within which banks operate. And non-compliance with those pieces of legislation can lead to sanction, possible revocation of our license, and by sanction, a financial uh, sanction, um, as well as a revocation of our license and criminal sanction, including personal criminal liability, which I, as the compliance officer appointed in terms of Section 60A of the Banks Act, would have been, um, would have applied, it would have applied to me too. Which meant that part of my duties were to ensure that we had a sound risk management system to allow us to be able to ensure that the bank did not allow itself or its system to be used for any unlawful activity. Thank you, Ms. Masasela. So I've been um, informed that it's now one o'clock. May we take the lunch adjournment until two? Yes, uh, we are going to take the lunch adjournment. Uh, we'll resume at two o'clock. Thank you. Thank you. We adjourn.